And Merry Christmas to you all. We're so glad you could be with us today for our Christmas service. It's Christmas Eve, and we're here on a Sunday morning. And I always tell people, because sometimes people have questions about, you know, when the holidays fall on a Sunday. In my book, Sunday trumps everything. So no matter what, we have a Sunday service. And of course, it just works out conveniently for us that it happens to be Christmas Eve. But we're very happy to have you with us. And if you're visiting, welcome. I hope I got to say hello. If I didn't, welcome. And we're glad you could be with us. We are taking a moment this morning to step away from our regular study in the book of Genesis. And we're going to be in Luke's Gospel in chapter 2. And I just want to share a few things with you as we look at the nativity, the Christmas story. It's important to remember that these were real people. These were common people in the story. These were people who had reactions to the circumstances taking place in their lives and around their lives in much the same way that any of us would have reacted. I think sometimes we have a tendency to sort of idolize or take people into a place that people just don't react the way that we may portray them in the Christmas story. I I just don't think that anyone could have prepared themselves for what was about to happen that time so long ago when Christ came as a little child. I think everyone was probably bewildered. I think most people had no clue exactly what was going on. They knew something was taking place, but beyond that, there was probably very little understanding on a large scale. So what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to look at the Christmas story, and I'd like for us to think about the fact that if we were in that situation, if, if any of us found ourselves in a situation like Joseph and Mary, or the shepherds, or any of the other people at that time, that we would have needed a work of God in our own hearts to be able to embrace and understand the truth. And clearly, each and every one of us today, we need a work of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives to be able to grasp and respond properly to the work that God accomplished through his coming as a child, ultimately giving his life on the cross and being raised from the dead three days later to save us from our sins with the promise that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Amen? Let's pray this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, we are just common folk. We are just people who study your word and need an understanding from your spirit to begin to understand what it is that you have done for us. And I pray that more than anything else this morning, we would have a clear understanding of what you've done for us. With that understanding, may we respond with understanding, giving our hearts and our lives to you afresh and anew, that we might live an eternity with you because of the sacrifice you made and our response to that sacrifice by faith, by placing our faith in you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, we know that we can experience eternity with you, for apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord God... Bless this time we have together. We thank you for our time of worship. We thank you for our children's presentations. And we thank you for our fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, again, you can turn with me to Luke's Gospel in chapter 2. And we're going to take sort of a 
overview look at the nativity or the Christmas story. And we'll start by reading the first seven verses of chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel. And you're probably very familiar with this portion of Scripture. But if you're not, it reads, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, uh, or excuse me, Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, some of the things I'm going to share with you may change your understanding of the manger scene. But nothing will change the truth that Jesus came as a child to be born as a man that he might ultimately give his life for each and every one of us. Mary gave birth to her son Jesus, the Son of God, and the Messiah of Israel. They were staying in Bethlehem in Judea. Now, we know that Caesar Augustus, who reigned from 44 B.C. to 14 A.D., ordered a census of the whole Roman Empire in 4 B.C. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does that mean? That means that Christ was born in 4 B.C., that is, four years before Christ. But you see, the problem is calendars are very challenging things. And when they change the reckoning of time to B.C. and A.D., I mean, that didn't happen even remotely close to the event. It took place many, many years later. And at that point, they were sort of guessing, based on astronomical records, based on historical records, they were sort of guessing when Christ was born. They got close. They were within four years. Now, since then, we, we know a little bit more, and, and we, we have the history to understand, but the census was ordered as a means to increase tax revenue. So once again, the government was raising taxes. Very little seems to have changed. This was the first census of Augustus while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, Quirinius was made governor of the province of Syria, which included Judea, in 4 BC. And there was indeed a Roman taxing about this time as well. When someone comes into power, that's one of the first things they usually do. So what does that tell us? It tells us that this is reliable. Historical record. It is a reliable historical record. This isn't a fantasy or a fairy tale. We are given by Luke, who is a competent historian, we are given the date of this event. Men were required to return to their birthplace to register with the Roman government. And so that clues us in to the fact that Joseph was from Bethlehem. Now, Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth and Galilee to Bethlehem to register for this census. They had to. They didn't want to. I don't know. Maybe you can ask some of the moms here. But I don't know of any woman that close to giving birth that is interested in traveling uh, from one town to another uh, probably over a very uncomfortable distance in an uncomfortable way. But what choice did they have? So Joseph's family was from Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. He was actually a descendant of David who was born in Bethlehem. Why was he in Nazareth? Well, he was living and working in Nazareth in the north at the time. Mary 
was Joseph's pregnant wife, though they had not consummated their marriage. And of course, we know that that was a scandalous situation that Joseph sought to remedy as quickly as possible. See, Mary was also a descendant of David, but not through the royal line. So she went along with Joseph, for she was with Joseph, but Mary and Joseph had made plans early on to spend their life together, and they were now together. Not in the way a married couple is together, but they were together now because God had deemed it so. I want to read something for you from Matthew's Gospel, the parallel account in verse 18. We're told, excuse me, uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, when you're betrothed in this culture, it requires a divorce to become unbetrothed. But betrothed is more like engaged, although our cultures are different, it's more like engaged than married. So yes, you would have needed a divorce to get unengaged, in a sense, or unbetrothed. So this is all going on. We know that they had plans to spend a life together. Now, Mary had planned to marry Joseph within a year of their betrothal. And this is how it worked. She had more than likely been engaged to Joseph by her parents when she was very young. These were arranged marriages. More than likely, uh, today, most marriages in our world are arranged. Some cultures still very much arrange marriages. They are not, as they say in some cultures, love marriages. They are arranged. In the more conservative cultures and ancient cultures, this is still the case. Interestingly enough, before you think, oh, how could that work? I believe the divorce rate is far lower among arranged marriages than love marriages. Why is that? Because a love marriage is brought together by love and hopefully commitment, and arranged marriages brought together by commitment and hopefully love. Are you with me? See, after a while, anyone who's been married a while knows commitment trumps that loving feeling. You see, commitment is what keeps you together. Love may bring a love marriage together, but it's commitment that keeps you together. In either case, in any case, it's commitment. So, she had pledged herself to Joseph now that she was of age. So your parents would arrange your marriage, but then you'd be sort of engaged, but then you'd be betrothed, and that was a ceremony, and that had already taken place, but she had not planned to conceive a child before she was married. That was not part of her plan. But the Holy Spirit had other plans for her life. Now, I, I know all of us uh, look at this situation. We can't imagine being in this situation. And indeed, in, in the history of, of man, it's only happened once. So uh, probably not a good excuse <laughs> for anyone else. But I will say this. There are many things that happen in our lives that we don't plan for. There are many things that... We look ahead into our life and say, well, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and I'm not interested in that, and I'm not interested in this. And then God gets involved, and I think you'll find that when you give your life to Christ, there are many things that the Holy Spirit will plan for your life that have nothing to do with your plans for your life. That is the way it goes. That's what it means to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. 
Anyone who's lived any length of time knows God has other plans for your life that do not include the plans you've made for your life. Some of those things may still happen. Some of them may not. But God's plans are never thwarted. Amen? And of course, Joseph had planned to marry Mary within a year as well. He had been engaged, more than likely, to Mary by his parents when she was young and had pledged himself to her now that she was of age. She was probably very young. But he had not planned to recant his pledge and divorce her quietly. That wasn't in the plan. But once she had conceived the child, he wanted to walk away for obvious reasons. There was no other way to protect her reputation, really. Uh, he, He needed to to take care of the situation quietly because according to the law in Deuteronomy 22, if a woman was in this situation, she was stoned, put to death for her infidelity, for her disgrace. He wanted to protect her. We're told that because he was a righteous man. So while other people may have been vindictive, he was not. And of course, the Holy Spirit had other plans for his life as well. Well, the Lord had a different plan for Mary and Joseph. And we go back to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 20. And in chapter 1, verse 20, we read, But after he had considered this, that is, considering kind of taking care of this thing quietly, and not getting married to her, but, but handling the situation in a way that would preserve her life, but get him off the hook. Notice it says, After he considered this, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of Jehovah, appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. There's no question about what the angel is telling this man, Joseph. Mary's going to give birth to the Messiah, God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And so, under the laws of that culture, he had really the choice of divorcing her quietly or marrying her quickly. And so they sped up the marriage and and he, and he married her. Because that was what God told him to do. And it's what made sense under these circumstances, as I'm sure you would agree. But this was the Lord's plan. Joseph was the man that God had chosen to raise his son. Mary was the woman that God had chosen to have his son. She had not been unfaithful to Joseph, and she was still called to be his wife. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and therefore He is the Son of God. Amen? So we can put that to rest and understand that that is a tenet of our faith. That is a truth that without embracing that truth, there is no Christianity. It's that fundamental to our faith. In in other words, what I'm saying is, just like you really can't have a relationship with God and truly believe in God unless you embrace the cross and the empty tomb, the same is also true. You really can't even be a Christian unless you understand and embrace the virgin birth. Why is that so fundamental? Why is that so important? Because a man couldn't die for mankind's sins. That is, a man alone. He had to be more than just a man. He had to be the God-man. He had to be God 
He couldn't just be God. He had to be the God-man. And by the way, he's not 50% God and 50% man. He's a 100% God and 100% man. That's very difficult to understand. In fact, it's impossible to understand, but it happened because the Holy Spirit made it so. So this is God's plan. And the Lord had revealed his plan to Israel through his prophet in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And, and that was something that the angel communicated to Joseph. And we read there in verse 22... All this took place, of chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that would be Isaiah, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, or God with us, which means God's with, God's with us. So here's, the, here's the, the part that some people get tripped on, on. They will look at that and they'll say, well, Isaiah didn't mean... A virgin would give birth. He just meant a young girl would give birth. Like, in other words, she was a maid, then she had a child the natural way, and then that child would be the Messiah. Can I ask you, what is so miraculous about that? I mean, it is a miraculous experience, don't get me wrong, but that would hardly be a sign, wouldn't it? So, so those that refute the prophetic truth have to say, well, what is, I mean, answer the question, what is so spectacular about that? How could that be a sign unless it truly was a virgin who would give birth? So we can settle that as well. That happened. That is the truth. And without that truth, there is no Christmas. Without that truth, there is no Christianity. Without that truth, there is no Christ. Without that truth, we're lost in our trespasses and dead in our sins. But we embrace that truth. Amen? Isaiah the prophet predicted this miraculous sign 700 years earlier, that the Messiah would be born the son of a virgin, proving that he is the son of God. God with us. So Mary and Joseph, how did they react? Well, here's the thing. I mean, if we put ourselves in that situation, we can imagine it would have been incredibly difficult to respond appropriately, whether you're Mary or whether you're Joseph. Either or both needed to respond to God's plan for their life together. Now remember that Mary had submitted to God's plan. In Luke's gospel, the previous chapter, in verse 31 of chapter 1, we are told that Mary was greatly troubled, actually in verse 29, at the words, the words that were, she was told by the angel that she was going to give birth to a, a, a child. I'm actually backing up right here to verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. So she's told as well that his name will be Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's the, that means he's the Messiah of Israel. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, or Israel, forever. His kingdom will never end. 
Good question, Mary asks, how will this be, since I am a virgin? Well, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You jump down to verse 38, and you see Mary's response. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. There was nothing about this announcement that violated the will of Mary. God's word and will for her life is communicated, and her response is to submit, to give her life to God and say, be it as you will. I am your servant. By the way, this is the only way we can possibly submit to the direction God has for each and every one of our lives. There are far too many people, dare I say, Christians or professed Christians, who believe that being a Christian means that you occasionally, maybe on Sunday, maybe even on a Wednesday, go to church, listen to the word, uh, maybe give, maybe serve. But as it relates to the plans for your life, God doesn't get to touch any of those things. Those are up to you. And you go through life and you basically said, Lord, bless my desire to get this education. Lord, bless my uh, job. Lord, bless my family. Bless my relationships. Lord, bless my life. Bless my business. We say all these things, but at no point do we say, I am the Lord's servant. Not truly. Be as you desire in my life. That is a very, very difficult thing to say, and yet it is essential. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. So I'm going to stress this because I do believe, just like being a Christian means you embrace the fundamental tenets of the faith, like the virgin birth and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on the cross, it's vitally important, in fact essential, that you understand that in order to serve God and be his servant, you have to call him Lord and submit your life to him. And that means that when you have plans to be a big rock star, okay, or, or you have plans to open up a business or go to a school across the country, or whatever your plans are to, to get married and, and maybe live in a particular place, whatever those plans are, if you don't take them like Mary who was asked to do a lot more, by the way, than most. And you don't submit them to the Lord and say, I'm the Lord's servant, may it be to me, as you have said. You are actually not really serving God. In fact, you're holding back. And we all hold back to a certain degree. But I think in today's church, not this church, not every church, but in the church at large, we see a lot of people who are perfectly content to call themselves Christians, but have never really submitted their lives and their hearts to God. I can tell you there was no point really in my life prior to giving my life to Christ that this was the plan. That what I'm doing today was the plan. It wasn't. And I'm not resentful about it. I have no regrets. But I'm here to tell you there came a point in my life where I had to say, uh, well, my plan's out the window. God's plan has to be done in my life because I am his servant. And sometimes you're reluctant, and sometimes you're joyful, and and sometimes it's a struggle, and it's incredibly difficult to submit to God's plan. If God has ordained suffering for your life, right, who embraces that and says, oh, this is just great, peace and goodwill toward men. God bless us all, everyone. 
You know, I, I wish we could be like many of Dickens' characters and just sort of embrace hardship, but we don't. Let's be honest. We don't embrace it. We don't have that glasses half full attitude. Many times something doesn't happen in our lives or we can't achieve a, a particular goal. And our reaction, well, what is our reaction? We have sour grapes, so to speak. We're very disappointed. We get angry at God. We don't want to serve God anymore. In fact, we don't want to do anything for God anymore. Barely go to church because we don't like God's will for our lives. But he is God in heaven and you are here on earth. And as the scripture says, let your words be few. You probably, I probably, we probably need to start with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. For that is how Christ submitted to the cross. And the sooner we get there as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, the better off we'll be. This struggle between us, our will, and God's will should not be a lifelong process. There should come a point where you and I, we, to the best of our ability, embrace God's will for our life, submit to it, and call him Lord. Can I hear an amen? amen. Imagine what would happen in our world if everyone who proclaimed to be a Christian actually responded in that way. Well, I'll move on, but I want to make it clear. Mary submitted to God's plan. She respected God's will. She obeyed God's word. She saw herself as God's servant and submitted to him. So she changed her plans. I'm terrible at changing plans. I'm a planner. When I was a project manager, in my career in the business world, that was my plan. Notice I'm not doing that anymore, right? Because that was not God's plan forever. We had uh, a process. We would develop a project plan. And, of course, no one wants to change a project plan, but we had another document called a change request or a, a, a document that told us how we can change the plan if we need to. You, you have to plan for change. Does that sound right? Yeah, you have to plan for change. But most of us make our plans, and God help us if they have to change, right? You have to embrace change. You know the word repentance actually means to change one's mind or direction? If you can't, if I can't, if we can't come to a place where we're willing to change, we can't serve God. Changing our plans, well, that's part of serving Christ. And it's not all bad news. You speak to people that have served the Lord their whole lives, they'll, they'll tell you that there were things that happened in their lives they weren't happy with, but they'll also recount for you all the many blessings that have come into their lives, the result of serving God according to his plan. So, she changed her plans. She willingly conceived a child that wasn't against her will. That did not take place until she submitted her heart and her body to, to God. Hey, Joseph had to submit to God's plan as well. If we go back to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1 and verse 24, and I'm, I'm going back and forth between the two Gospel accounts to give you a, a broader picture it says, when Joseph woke up from the dream, right? When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. He sped things up. That wasn't the plan. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to his son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So God's in control of this situation, but there are very normal, common people submitting their will to God. 
And by the way, that's the way God has chosen to work in our world. He has not chosen to work as a benevolent dictator. He hasn't chosen to violate our free will. He hasn't chosen to demand things from us that we're not willing to do or to give. He has chosen to command, but also to ask and honor our response, which means you have to respond to God's will. I have to respond to God's will. What happened? Joseph submitted to God's plan. He married her immediately to protect her reputation. He changed his plans and didn't divorce her at all. He didn't break the betrothal. He respected God's will and obeyed God's word. And that's where we all need to get to. Amen. This morning's message is about submitting to God. And as we look at the individuals involved in the nativity, in the Christmas story, that is a common theme. Everyone involved submitted to God's will. But of course, it starts with the one who came. He submitted to his father's will. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, his only son, his one and only son. And he came and he died on the cross for our sins. He gave his life. That was a choice. The father didn't inflict that on the son. The son submitted to the father in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see, Christmas, really more than anything else, it's about submission. It's about surrendering to God's will. And it starts with God himself and the Son of God, and those who were involved in the birth of the Son of Man. Well, what happened next? We read it already. Mary gave birth to Jesus while they were in Bethlehem to register for the census. And it's interesting, the prophet Micah had actually predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Judah. There are actually two cities, so-called, Bethlehem in Israel at that time. And Micah confirms a Bethlehem Ephrata, the smaller of the two. And so that's in Micah chapter 5 too, that in fact, the Messiah would be born in this particular city. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That is, days before days, the ages past, eternity. And so there... You have all the information you need, if you're living at that time, to recognize that God was coming to earth in the form of a child. It surprised a lot of people, but I don't think anyone was more surprised than Mary, with the possible exception, or at least equally, Joseph. Mary likely gave birth to Jesus in the place where Joseph's family kept their animals. We have a sort of romantic notion that, you know, they went to the town. And, you know, we saw this acted out in many a Christmas pageant, including ours recently here at Calvary Chapel, where they go to the different places to stay in the inns and everyone closes the door on them and then they end up in a barn somewhere. But Mary likely gave birth to Jesus in the place where Joseph's family, who lived in Bethlehem, kept their animals. See, we have a concept of an innkeeper, and that comes from the English concept of inns. But listen, uh, there was no room for them in the inn. That word in Greek means guest chamber. Guest chamber. This would have been an upper room reserved for guests in the home. Many homes at that time kept their animals on the ground floor. This is true in some villages in England even today. They would keep the animals on the ground floor 
and the residents and the guests would sleep on the second floor. And so, more than likely, they go to Joseph's family where they had been planning to stay, and there was no room for them in the guest chamber. So they had to sleep on the first floor with the animals. Doesn't that make a little bit more sense? There really wasn't a Marriott or a Holiday Inn at that time. Inns, inns were notoriously bad places if they existed at all. And I won't use the word that would probably more appropriately describe an inn at that time if it existed. This is more than likely what happened. And, and because of that, I look at it and I think, well, it doesn't make it all that much better. But it, it certainly gives us an understanding of why they ended up with the animals. And it wouldn't have been uncommon if there wasn't enough room in a very small home, which I'm sure they lived in a very small home. Now, newborn babies were wrapped in a long, narrow band of cloth, much the way they're swaddled today. Jesus was placed in a feeding trough for animals after he was born. It was convenient. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they cleaned it out. But in either case, it was a convenient cradle. Uh, they didn't have pack and plays. Uh, they didn't have any other means of, of put, placing the baby in a, in a safe place. It makes a lot of sense. So when I look at these things, being a person who loves history and culture, I look at things a little bit more deeply. And now I just ruined your holiday nativity set outside your house, around your Christmas tree, and even behind me today. That's not my intent. I just want you to see that these were very normal people under very normal circumstances, submitting to God. Well, let's wrap things up. There's a few more things that happen here. And in Luke's gospel, and in chapter 2 and in verse 8, let's, let's look at the shepherds. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Again, very common people living outside, which shepherds do. They live outside. Uh, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I think that's one of the most common phrases or imperatives in the entire Bible. Do not be afraid. You know, maybe we need to hear that today. I'm not real happy with our culture promoting fear and anxiety. I have a, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I have a thought that the drug companies might like it if you need anxiety medication. And who knows if the media is in cahoots. But I'll tell you what, the media definitely does a really good job of making us afraid or trying to make us afraid, which is why I turned it off a long time ago. You know, I've I've discovered something. The baser emotions of mankind are promoted by our culture. I found that when I watched football, I got aggravated, which is why I don't watch it anymore. I also found that it promoted violence in my heart. And apparently it promotes violence in our culture and on the field. I've noticed that the media promotes distrust, division, anxiety, depression. For a while, you used to be able to turn on the news and get a feel-good story. Now, God forbid you turn on the news at 11 o'clock at night, you're not sleeping. Unless, of course, you take a pill from Big Pharma, then that might help. That is called sarcasm. And I am tired of the attempt to be manipulated by my culture, whether it be pharmaceutical culture, whether it be uh, social media, whether it be the media, whether it be television, news. And this is why I have to a great deal checked out of a lot of those things. You know something? I've chosen to do things that are healthy and promote peace and tranquility in my life. 
So that God doesn't have to say to me every other five minutes, do not be afraid. I have my moments. We all do. But I am not living in fear. I am not allowing the world to promote a culture of fear in my heart. So the next time you're watching something or hearing about something or reading something and you find that you're becoming fearful, turn that off. Step away from it. God is saying to you today, do not be afraid, but you have to respond. You have to submit. You have to choose to trust. And why would you allow that infiltration of anxiety to enter your heart and your life? It's only going to push you farther and farther away from God and his plan for your life. Amen? Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. You see, you're going to get good news in church. The word is gospel. It's good news. So maybe spend a little bit more time in church and less time on social media. What do you think? I'm not a big fan of the social media church, as you can probably imagine. If there is such a thing, I don't really believe there is. It's probably the biggest counterfeit the devil has for the church today is to convince you into thinking you can go to church without going to church. I'm done. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, all, all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a feeding trough, in a manger. I I imagine there may have been a few babies born at that time, but probably not too many who were in a feeding trough. And so this becomes a sign. And, and, and what we learn here is that these shepherds, these local shepherds, the Lord, the angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds to announce the birth of their Messiah. And they're very common people. In fact, shepherds were considered questionable and unimportant people from the lower class of their society. They, they weren't the upper class. They were the common working class. They were even below the working class in many ways. They were despised. Well, why were they despised? Well, they were unable to observe the laws of ceremonial purification. And Jews took these things very seriously. As a result, they were despised by their own people. And they had not been schooled in the law. They were therefore considered ignorant. So they were common, ignorant people. And God chose to send his angel to a bunch of low-class, common, ignorant people. And now we know why he called us. Because you know something? God isn't looking for really important, powerful people. The Bible says that he's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So is it any surprise that all the very intelligent people want nothing to do with the church and all the very radical, progressive people think the church is the enemy of the people. Is it any wonder why we find ourselves among people who trust God in a very common and simple way? I'm okay with that. Because when God chose to announce the birth of his son, he didn't go to a palace, he went to a field. He found a bunch of very common people and he told them the truth of God's word. By the way, you, you, you don't have to be common to receive the gospel. 
But what is it we learn from the scriptures? Not many rich men enter the kingdom of God. Not many noble, not many powerful. Why is that? Because you have to have a humble heart to receive the good news. Amen? And they were very humble, obviously. You get humble when people like, you're walking down the street and people walk away from you. Because either you don't smell the way that they want you to, or you've spent a, a whole night out in the field, or you're just someone who can't be ceremonially pure. Humility sort of is the result of living the life of a shepherd. And they, being despised, were honored by God in the greatest of ways. Now, the angels, probably Gabriel, who had appeared a number of times already to direct the birth of the Messiah, I, I believe that he was the project manager, if you will, on this task. Gabriel had appeared to Daniel on two occasions to predict the coming Messiah in Daniel 8 and 9. He had appeared to Zechariah to predict the birth of John the Baptist, the herald of Messiah, in Luke 1. We know he had appeared to Mary to predict the birth of Jesus. He may have appeared to Joseph on four occasions to warn him. We're not told it was Gabriel, but I suspect... He may have appeared to the Magi, that is, the wise men who came from the east, to warn them in a dream as well. We'll see that in Matthew 2. Angels are ministering spirits. They desire to look into such things. Gabriel's given the job to orchestrate God's will. And what did the angel do? Well, we read it. The angel calmed their fears. He proclaimed that Israel's long-awaited Messiah had been born. I have a little pet peeve. I have a few, but this is one of them. Pastors that like to create fear and anxiety. That's one of my pet peeves. See, I think you should walk into the house of God and leave calmer and more sane than when you walked in. But it doesn't have to be that way, and pastors prove this all the time. They'll put the stats up on the screens. They'll show little videos. They'll make you think the world is going to blow up tomorrow. Then they'll pass the plate. I don't appreciate when people in spiritual positions manipulate others to give and manipulate them to be dependent on the church. The Bible tells us, the angel said, do not fear. So when you hear a message from the pulpit, any pulpit, that causes you to have fear and anxiety, can I encourage you? Reject that. Because here's the thing, God says, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. We should leave encouraged. We should leave knowing we can trust God in even the worst and the darkest of times. Not that you have to come to church and feel good every time, but you should at least know that you can trust God and don't need to fear anymore. Amen? Well, he calmed their fears. These shepherds were called to share the good news of great joy to all people, even to even shepherds, all people. He told them when and where their Savior, the Anointed One, the Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the King, had been born. So they go, and they will find this sign to assure them of the truth, the child laying in a manger in a feeding trough. Okay, well, at this point, you can imagine the shepherds are like, what? So we read in verse 13, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, now just imagine that, the angel, 
you know, the angels say, don't be afraid. I suspect they were a little afraid of the angel. Don't be afraid. And, and, and then all of a sudden, suddenly, the heavenly host. That must have made an impression. Would you agree? Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, notice not singing, just a little point of contention there, saying, not singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, good conclusion, by the way, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So, yeah, a great company of angels appears out of nowhere, that must have been interesting, to praise God and bless men by God's grace. And so the angels disappear just as quickly as they appeared, and they return to the spiritual realm. Why this big fanfare? These shepherds needed some convincing that what they had been told to do was, in fact, God's will. You know what I found? God will do whatever is necessary to convince you of his will if you're willing to submit to his will. I'm going to say that again. God will do whatever is necessarily or necessary to convince you of his will if you're willing to do his will. But if you're not willing to submit to God, why should God pull out a, a, a host of angels to convince you otherwise? It starts with submitting your heart to God. And then believe me, if you have a hard time If there's a moment where you think, God, I can't do this, or did I really hear God's voice, or, oh my goodness, how could this be true? If a host of angels need to show up to say, do it, they will. That's what I found. When people say, well, I I, I couldn't do God's will, I think to myself, tell me how you fought the will of God. How did that work out for you? Because I've never been able to do it. See, I don't understand that because I've tried, to be honest tried many times to not do what God has called me to do. But the mistake I made, in quotes, mistake, is that a long time ago I gave my life to Christ. And at that point, kind of surrendered my will and my right of refusal. So if I refuse God, I find myself like Jonah on a ship to Tarshish. Somehow I find myself barfed up on a beach somewhere. I find myself like Elijah the prophet, hiding in a cave only to realize God's not going to let you go. What are you doing here, Elijah? If you truly give your heart to Christ, you don't have to worry about not doing his will unless you fight that. And believe me, you're not going to get very far. Because God, if you belong to God, God is faithful. He's faithful and he will not let you fall. So, Shepherds never doubted the truth of this angelic announcement, (laughs) nor did they doubt the birth of their Messiah. And so we read in verse 16, so they hurried off. Well, I bet they did. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. So even the shepherds had to submit, right? And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed, astounded, if you will, At what the shepherds said to them, it doesn't say that they believed it. They were just astounded or amazed by what they said. But Mary, she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which uh, which were just as they had been told. So you have a cast of characters that show up and are usually portrayed by our children at Christmas. But all of them seem to have this one thing in common. They were willing to do the will of God. 
I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And, and I want you to think about, what are you willing to do? Or maybe I should ask this question, what aren't you willing to do? If you're in a place where you're fighting God, you're fearful, you're anxious. In fact, the thought of doing God's will and submitting to God's will frightens you. Then it's time for that to change. It's time for that to change. Everyone that heard this announcement seemed amazed, as in disbelief. But Mary, what did she do? She kept these precious truths to herself, perhaps out of fear for the child's safety. She wasn't going to go on a tour promoting her child as the Messiah. Not in that world, not at that time. And what did the shepherds do? Well, they simply returned to their sheep with the knowledge that the Messiah had finally come. They went back to the things they were doing. They lived their lives, common people living common lives, in submission to God. And that's where we find ourselves at the end of our study today. We find ourselves asking a question to our own hearts. And that is, am I a common person? Probably. Have I been given a charge by God? Possibly. Has God called me to something? To some group of people? To some person? To some task? Perhaps. But you're never going to find out until you submit your heart to Him. And submitting your heart to Him, it's very simple actually. By faith you say, Lord... I recognize what we studied today in your word, which is your truth. I recognize the truth of your coming through a virgin, which means you're God. The virgin birth, I acknowledge that truth. I accept that as truth. And if that's true, of course, I accept the truth that you came to die on a cross for our sins. And that you rose again on the third day to show the whole world that you weren't just an ordinary man. That Christ was, in fact, the Son of God, is the Son of God. As we believe these things, as we proclaim this truth in our hearts, we recognize that Scripture teaches us that to as many as received them, to those that believed on his name, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. And so as we pray, I'm going to encourage you this Christmas to open up your heart to God's will. This could be for the person who's attended church their whole lives and has never surrendered their heart, or the person like me who has to surrender their heart every day. Let's surrender our hearts to God. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Christmas story, the nativity. We thank you for the the profound impact of this truth and these truths and all of the characters in this account. And wherever we find ourselves today, may we be submitted to you and to your will. May we acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior. Give our hearts to you. And as a nearly, if not totally miraculous sign of this decision, may you not only quickly communicate your will for us, may you take away the fear. May you take away the anxiety. May you give us purpose and understanding. And may we find it not just easy, but even possible to trust you with our lives and our hearts. May that sign be the result of our decision by faith today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.